Yeah, and, and thanks for and, and thanks for folks that are carving out some time here. This should be fun. Um, yeah, I've been studying this, the venture space for a number of years. I, I landed on 3000 Sand Hill Road in 1990, um, joined a multifamily office, and the first portfolio I was handed to manage was Larry Sincini's personal money. And then Pierre Lamont from Sequoia and Sven Siemenson, as my boss and predecessor, was longtime Bay Area family and, and was sort of the go-to um, boutique investment firm um, in the 70s and really very much so in the 80s. And the bank in Liechtenstein came calling, bought his firm in 1988, and I joined at 90. So I, I just been studying this space from the front row seat uh, serendipitously by joining that firm in 1990 before the internet took off. So um, we have been assimilating a lot of research um, in the venture model, certainly from the lens of a, a money manager. Um, we did our own securities analysis and stock picking, and, and uh, there was a lot of rigor to that, and a lot of process orientation and even though we picked individual stocks, we didn't view ourselves as stock pickers, very much a process orientation to deliver, hopefully deliver repeatable alpha, which we, we were able to do for a couple of decades. And so that's really the lens that a lot of this research has been assimilated in viewing the venture industry, um, both from the inside and then certainly as an observer um, the last decade. And, and we've launched a, a company to uh, implement some of this research. Uh, and so I've been assembling sort of what I call fellow travelers and um, folks that have viewed the the venture industry through a lens of, of I'll say, uh, investment rigor and objectivity. Um, first one, uh, one of our guests and, and a key part of that lens and that view is Mel Carter. Mel, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, again, thanks for thanks for putting this together. This is a fantastic. Uh, Mel Carter, we Grover uh, Capital uh, in the private equity group. So uh, Grover bought the Credit Suisse Customized Fund Investment Group uh, years ago, and I've been doing this for a little over uh, 17 years, uh, really focused on primaries, uh, venture and growth being the my primary focus. Uh, we've invested, I've been involved investing probably 100 different venture uh, funds over the years, and currently on the board of 40 plus uh, venture firms. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Rupert. I used to work at T. Rowe Price, uh, retired, uh, was a venture partner then with Greenspring Associates. The, the founder of Greenspring worked for me at T. Rowe Price. Uh, that was sold to Stepstone last year. Uh, it was a $17 billion asset management firm. I'm on the board of Antler, which is a very rapidly growing asset management firm globally that focuses on venture capital. I think they're probably the largest proprietary company builder. And I'm a very, very active uh, investor in funds and directly in deals uh, in about 25 different countries around the globe. Lovely. Mr. Goldman. Yeah. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, <clears throat> where do I start? Uh, I have been running, although I, I sort of transitioned uh, this past year, running for a number of years, a family office for Eric Schmidt, multi-multi-billion, very big family office, actually. But um, I uh, really got my chops, so to speak, doing CFO work, CFO for com uh, companies like uh, Yahoo, uh, Fortinet, which we helped take public, uh, Siebel, Sybase, uh, uh, a number of other companies involved with three companies going public. I've uh, been on probably well over 40 boards now, if you can count all my public boards. I'm on four public boards now, um, actually four private uh, boards and uh, three nonprofit boards. Uh, as Todd said, I'm a very active investor in both uh, venture funds, private equity funds, in one-off deals, uh, and, and involved in a number of family office conferences and events, 
and so I keep myself relatively busy. And I like to do, um, honestly, it's funny, I like to do active sports. Uh, so I do, uh, I do kiteboarding, skiing, golf. Actually, golf's not that active. Um, and so I keep, I, I keep, uh, pretty, keep pretty busy. And actually, just got a, just got a text as I, as I was getting ready. My son says, we'll go to Montana ski last week and he says if there's a big storm coming maybe we should stay an extra few days so we'll see what i do and then you gotta do what you gotta do in life well now you have to tell us your handicap uh it's really high it's in it's <laughs> over 20 i'll just say it that way <laughs> i'm a better i'm a better kiteboarder than i am uh golfer how about, a pick, how about pickleball ken no you know it's funny the reason is i i'm I don't have good hand, hand-eye coordination, so <clears throat> I'm better at sports like skiing and, and, and water sports where you don't need co- – you can sort of compensate for a lack of coordination with just, for, you know, stre- strength and, um, you know, compensating one for another. <laughs> hey, hey, Ken, this is Peter. I'll just note I was in Park City last week and uh, – Plenty of snow and great skiing out there, so uh, recommend that too. Yeah, well, thank you. Let me know. I'm, I'm actually going to be uh, in Deer Valley for early February with uh, Morgan Stanley and folks, so I'm, I'm going to be skiing Deer Valley um, in, in early February, so I look forward to that. Yeah, it was awesome. Well. Yeah, awesome. now skiing, for those in this call, uh, skiing in the West, you just look at the weather and the rain and snow and everything else. It's just crazy. It's great, oh, actually. It's, it's so, awesome. Uh, well, I think you can all tell we all aspire to be Todd and or Ken for crying out loud. It's what happens when you've been around for a long time. <laughs> uh, last but definitely not least, call you. Why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you. Yeah, and, and appreciate the opportunity. Looking forward to the uh, continued discussion. Um, I represent a single family office. We have investments across like most large multi-billion dollar family offices across every asset class. Our main two holdings are venture and uh, private equity, uh, excuse me, venture and real estate. Um, and I run all the privates for us. Um, so very active on the fund side, very active on the direct side. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, Mark, were you going to give me, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> You're right. Why don't you take it over? I'll give you, so you don't have to say next slide. All righty. How do I do that? This is where we didn't train ahead of time. Or I'll take it back. You go ahead. You go ahead. Just click to the next one. All right. Give me a second. Well, you, you start talking. I'll, I'll, I'll catch yeah. up. And so, again, this is not a long presentation. This is meant to be fairly interactive, but but somewhat provocative at the same time, because there's a there is a, a, a gap in awareness of, of the changes that are taking place in, um, in the venture model. There's been a lot of thinking, a lot of academic studies for a number of years, and it was really almost pocket work being done going back 10, 15 years. But there's a growing chorus of academics and others that have been doing some really interesting work on almost rethinking. Okay, I want you to go to the next slide. Um, rethinking the venture model itself. And, and again, this evolutionary uh, view is, is take is using some of the tools of the public markets. So a lot of this sort of narrative is gonna come and be framed within the context of, investment practices that have been long since recognized in the public markets. But one of the things that people don't realize is it was captured in Tom Nicholas's book, VC in American History, which is sort of the update on the history, the history book on the venture industry itself. It's a wonderful book. And on page 311, he literally says it's ironic that the venture industry that, that funds innovation largely hasn't innovated. 
since the first fund was launched in 1959, following the Small Business Investment Act of 1958. Um, the very first um, venture fund was an SBIC, but the second one was a partnership. And that's largely been the model ever since. And so that's something that is, is finally getting some attention and some, uh, some conversation is the, mod, the industry that funds innovation themselves hasn't innovated. Now, there's been, again, some reports come out, um, and there is at the bottom of this uh, a links to a number of research pieces and white papers and the like. So for folks that uh, um, want the deck, we can provide it. I think it's been part of the materials Mark sent out. Um, but Sequoia announced October of, of 21 that they were changing their um, business model. And in their announcement, they spoke to this very point as well. That it, And this is their quote, as chip shrank in size and software migrated to the cloud, the venture industry is operating on the business equivalent of floppy disks. And it was a pretty poignant and, uh, and, and uh, pretty poignant way to, uh, to, to draw a proper light to the very changes that have taken place elsewhere, except for the industry that's funded some of those changes. And so that's really the, the context of what's happening. Now, the headlines, we've all been seeing a lot of these headlines. Um, about what's going on. Certainly FTX is the current one, but there's a lot of others uh, on what you could uh, generously call a misallocation of risk capital um, because the process of, of deploying that capital was caught up in a in uh, what, what can, again, generously be labeled bubble mentality. Gosh, what were we thinking? And those of us that have been around uh, a while, you know, saw this behavior repeat itself in the uh, 90s, uh, obviously with the dot-com. But you also saw it in the um, real estate and financialization uh, process that led to the uh, financial crash in 08, 09. So that sort of behavior, that tulip bulb mania, that sort of, we saw it with the meme stocks recently and NFTs and the like. So that's, that's part of the human condition. And the model itself is always going to be subject to that. But this narrative and a lot of the research is about how can we instill a little bit more rigor in the process so you can guard against some of those behaviors and most importantly, we can deploy capital with greater scale and efficacy um, to support more entrepreneurship around the country. And we don't have such a concentrated behavior, either geographically or money um, concentrated in a few of, the, of the, the hands of firms that tend to dictate the narrative. So um, one of the big questions, and Mel, I, again, I'd love to have you inject in some of your historical view on some of the, those topics that I just uh, touched on, if you've got anything to add or would like to inject some thoughts. Yeah, no, it, it, you know, while we're here today, and I, I've known Joe for for a number of years now, and, you know, the, the, the conversation is what, what can be done different, what's changed, what hasn't, and I'm looking at things from a institutional LP perspective. If I'm representing, you know, whomever, uh, and want to invest in venture, well, what's the best way of doing it? Well, you know, you, you've got to have enough volume or enough size in the program itself to be able to diversify across, you know, again, whether it's early stage or whether it's healthcare, whether it's IT, whether it's that, whatever you're you're focused on, uh, you know, use the expression stock picker. Well, if, if you don't have enough invested and enough to invest in the venture space, you really you're undertaking an enormous risk. Hey, it may work out great. You may have picked right, or the market changes and you're left with a lot of zeros on your sheet. So for me, what is interested, uh, and again, what Joe and I have talked about, it's what can be changed, what can be morphed so that you can really look at a uh, adventure firms differently if you can look at how they invest uh, in order to put together a, a real institutional portfolio 
with smaller bite sizes. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where I come from. And, and folks, I'm like I said, I want to in a, in a spirit of brevity, I'm going to try to move through these things. But you guys raise your hand or inject anywhere along the way. I don't want I don't like canned presentations. So. Well, one of the questions I've, I've gotten as I've been assembling a lot of this research and having conversations is why hasn't the model changed, as Tom Nicholas pointed out in his book? And again, the, the ex- explanation has always been, well, the venture industry has always been an apprenticeship model. You know, you start with NEA or some of the old guard firms and you cut your teeth for 10 years and you learn the ropes from the inside. And then you go off and oftentimes spin out if you weren't made partner soon enough or you've got an established relationship with enough LPs or potential LPs to maybe go off on your own. And that was a fine model when it was a very small industry, somewhat of a cottage industry, largely in a couple of locations. And the volume of entrepreneurial activity was also fairly concentrated and the numbers were fairly small. It was a very much apprenticeship guild model. And it was very much in investment terms, a real niche satellite strategy. You know, and it was it could add some juice and some beta to the portfolio. And it was largely viewed through a proper lens because the industry was fairly nascent uh, in its evolution, as was innovation or, or startups. But the, uh, the even though the NBCA was launched in 1973 or 74, um, it's still largely been a lobbying organization versus a professional standards and best practices organization. And if you look at the history and look at their websites and look at the content they put out, it was largely about representing the venture participants, their membership in Washington. And so it never did establish professional standards. There's never been established body of knowledge on what to study to actually launch in and be a proper fiduciary of, of other people's money. In fact, the opposite has been true. When we had the, the, um, the, the 90s and the dot-com, anybody could launch a fund and throw some money at the wall and see what stuck during that bubble period of time. Now, the smart investors, there's lots of good VCs out there. Don't get me wrong. There's a, folks that have had an apprenticeship and they've got wonderful internal training and systems and back office structures and, and, and real disciplines and how they're deploying other folks' capital. And they've, in many cases, been deploying a lot of these, the, some of the research that have been coming out as of late. They've been deploying that in, instinctively and intuitively because they're experienced investors. But it's still been uh, largely an access class who's who does understand how to deploy capital in this risky asset class. And folks like Mel has been, been studying these folks forever. And Todd and Ken have been participating with some of these folks for decades. But it's, it's largely been an access class versus an asset class where you could actually view the index of the returns as, as a representative uh, example of what you might expect as an investor. Um, where it's like we do in the ETFs or mutual fund world, where institutional investors deploy capital in the public markets. So next slide. So where are things t- taking place? There's a wonderful report that came out. It's at the, it's in the, uh, the, the uh, sort of the bibliography at the bottom of this, but um, uh, Deepak in Singapore, whether it was a sovereign wealth fund or family office, I don't recall. They hired Clayton Christensen's consulting firm, Innosite, to study the venture industry, classic consultant analysis. And they wrote a report that came out in late 20 or early 21 called The Future of Venture Capital. And they lay out a lot of these things. PitchBook's report that came out in, in and Ernst & Young's both that came out in January of 2021 talked about some of these very things we're talking about here in listing. And that is just part and parcel, greater use of data. Um, the importance of using data to make investment decisions shouldn't be self-evident or shouldn't be a revolutionary concept. But in the venture asset class, it really is. 
And so some of the innovative uh, funds that have been launched um, are using very much hedge fund-like use of anecdotal data to try and get an information advantage. Um, because the venture industry itself and the and startups themselves don't have to report like public companies are required to do that allow folks that that can access now that real standardized data to make informed investment decisions and build and manage portfolios off of data. The venture industry has been opaque, partly due to the, the lack of regulation over startup reporting, but also partly due to, as, as we pointed out earlier, really the lack of real formal training on the part of the, the industry to uh, understand what data to source to start taking a more data-driven approach until late. So some of these changes are starting to take place. We're starting to see some evidence of some of that. We've seen the big investment platforms come out and launch 40X structures around late-stage venture, building fund-to-funds in a late-stage model. We're starting to see this evergreen funds, which is a venture capital industry's way of talking a 40X mutual fund, just an open-ended strategy where it's not closed in its time period or um, the, um, the money that can be deployed. So we're starting to see this evolutionary movement towards uh, the, uh, uh, some of this research that's been coming out. And it's starting to look more like an asset class modeled after a lot of the best practices for public market investing. So I want to put a pin right there real quick. Again, I know we're covering a lot of topics fairly high level um, Todd or, or Ken or, or uh, Koyla, is there any thoughts you want to have on some of the materials we've talked on? Or well, just- <clears throat> well one, one of the things that you're talking about is, is increased diversification. And if you take a look at the difference between the public and private markets, you know, if you take a look over long time periods, the dispersion between the upper quartile and the lower quartile of, say, a small cap equity manager, or a large cap equity manager, is quite narrow over a 15 to 20 year time period. But over that same time period, if you look at the venture industry, there's enormous distribution of returns between the top quartile and the bottom quartile. And the bottom quartile is usually losing money. And, and why is that? Why is that? The venture capital is, is, is a, a lot of strikeouts and a couple of home runs. There's a power law driven asset class. And so if you've got a small number of companies in a portfolio, um, the likelihood of not generating good returns is is high. If you happen to get those those few power law players in there, you can have huge returns. And so hence, the disparity between top quartile and bottom quartile is high. If you want to try and take the venture industry and treat it more like the public markets, you want to reduce the spread between the upper quartile and the lower quartile. So you have more predictability in your return stream. And uh, I happen to be on the board of a company called Antler, which is a global company and a large uh, company builder. And they have 15 different pre-seed funds around the globe. And now they've created a, a fund that invests, it's a fund of funds, basically, at no fee, no carry, that invests in those underlying portfolios. So they're creating a portfolio of not 20 companies or 50 companies, but 1,500 companies. And when you run Monte Carlo simulations, which they've done about 6,000 Monte Carlo simulations, you dramatically truncate the spread between upper quartile and lower quartile. And actually, you increase the returns because you're getting more of those power law uh, uh, you know, uh, 
upper quartile performers into the portfolio. So there is a lot to be said for increasing diversification in venture portfolios. Todd, well spoken. Again, that there's it's a simple concept. Diversification mitigates risk and mitigates downside, so you can capture the corresponding upside of the asset class. That's not a a Herculean uh, concept to embrace from an investment perspective, but it's one that's relatively new for the venture asset class to embrace. And so well stated, and and to Antler's credit. Uh, Ken, any any thoughts? Yeah, I I do. I I think the the reality is, is is, it's funny. I I see a lot of proposals for venture funds. Everyone comes to me. I get so many people come to me both because I know a lot of people and also because of my relationship with Hillspire. Uh, it's funny. Everyone says they're a top. It's funny. It's like everyone's above average. Everyone says they're a top decile, top quartile fund. It's unbelievable. Um, you, you think the whole world is above. You think everyone is above average and smarts. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, only when they're raising. That's yes, <laughs> yeah. So I, I would say I, I take a, a lot of this with a grain of salt. Uh, honestly, um, I think the challenge I see in venture, and I have a discussion with a lot of folks, is particularly in early stage, is how long it takes to get your money, just get your capital back, never mind a return on your capital. Uh, I mean, I, I see a lot of great marks, uh, but you can't eat IRR. The only thing you can eat is DPI. They said over and over again. <clears throat> um, I, I think the, you know, I, I do like a lot of the established funds. Uh, I do worry about some of these funds that I think have gotten too too uh, smart for their own britches, so to speak. You know, like Sequoia goes to this continuation approach, but they they could have, you know, they and others uh, missed selling some of their best opportunities last year. And now they're stuck with, you know, uh, investments that are 60, 70, 80%, 90% below where they could have distributed. Um, so I think there's an issue of, when do you distribute? How do you distribute uh, when you get liquid stocks? Um, I recall in the early days, you know, the idea was when the Googles and Microsofts went out public, you know, most of the uh, Amazon, most of the, the appreciation occurred after they went public, but with companies staying private longer, I don't know that that's is still the case. So I'm, I'm happy to go. I don't want to, you know, say too many things, but I'm happy to go wherever questions people have. That's 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 very insightful, Ken. Uh, Carla, any uh, thoughts? <clears throat> I mean, we're covering like 25 different topics here. Um, I, I'm happy to kind of go into more detail or thoughts around any specific, but I feel like all three comments between yours, Ken's, and Todd's are. I mean, I, we must have covered 15 different, actually 15 <laughs> different topics. So. I mean, we could talk about the liquidity issue. We could talk about the lockup issue. We could talk about the diligence issue. We could talk about the lack of standardization, lack of reporting. I don't know what we want to talk about. I mean, the one thing that keeps coming up for me, we kind of mentioned it on the call yesterday is, um, and and Mel kind of touched on it, which is he's coming at it from, from a certain perspective. So I think that whatever perspective you're coming at, a VC can mean a lot of different things. And therefore, it the outcome can mean a lot of different things. And and that's just a very high general comment around, um, I don't know where exactly we want to take this conversation. The one other thing that I think, and I haven't finished um, reading your, uh, your report that you sent over, and I hopefully will uh, today, is 
I think that stage has a huge impact on this conversation. So on an overall basis, majority of what we're talking about, I think, applies more to seed than most other stages. And I think on a general basis, most of this makes sense. But it's I also think that there's a vertical focus towards um, the overall portfolio construction that does change the conversation. But once again, like that means now we're going into details. I don't know where we want to take this, but there's a lot to talk about every single aspect of this. Well, that's right. And I think it was Todd that was talking about, um, uh, touched on one of the topics here on, on the slide is diversification is a fundamental, uh, it's, what is it, um, was it Howard Marks or who was it that said, it's the only free lunch in investing is diversification. You literally can manage risk just through basic diversification. And yet the uh, the, the uh, 30 company venture portfolio uh, is not an optimized diversified portfolio unless you're at the B round or beyond. And the research that's out there from numerous sources certainly confirms that. And that's just how you manage what financial professors would call um, non-systematic risk or transaction risk. Uh, But the other risk to manage is systematic risk through staged capital deployment over multiple rounds. To your point, is is absolutely round is relevant. And the way you deploy capital in multiple rounds is critical to manage systematic risk, which also to Ken's point, addresses this issue of how long is the money tied up before I get some return on capital? And there's some wonderful optimization models that have been out there specifically called the, the Kelly criterion that is actually comes from the poker industry, but also what's called multi-arm bandit. It's, come, it's a game theoretical construct to optimize on return on your bets you're placing when you're able to place multiple bets where your early bets, the seed round, is is where you're starting to to place your early bets to start gathering information so you can make your larger bets later, uh, very similar to the Kelly criterion, once you start getting an information advantage. And that's really an optimized model from a a theoretical construct that was supported by by rigorous analysis. And it very much addresses some of the things both Ken and you, Collier, uh, talked about, which is how long is my money be tied up before I get an actual return on cash on cash return? And what's the proper diversification at what round, to your point? So, so can I can I just, uh, as a follow-up, I'm just curious. So I think that for me, I, I get pitched um, by a lot of fund managers that think that, they, that they're doing something different. And let's assume that they are. And they like to play the concentration versus diversification play. So yeah. basically, what, what seemingly what I what I heard you say, if this is right, is is beyond the B, play the concentration game. Up until then, it's probably not the best game. So maybe I could just po- pose the question to the panel, which is, how do you guys think about um, concentration versus diversification as it relates to um, fund investing on an overall venture portfolio? At the, I'd say the, the more diversification at the earlier stage, the better. Yeah. And then you can concentrate in your winners over time. And, and also, you know, diversification just doesn't mean number of mm-hmm. companies that you're investing in. It means diversifying by geography, diversifying by founder type, diversifying by industry. Uh, there's a lot I think a lot of people just don't see it. There's an incredible amount of opportunity outside of the United States and valuations are far lower uh, at that early stage. Uh, so a, a widely diversified, globally diversified, industry diversified, founder diversified portfolio, I think sets you up nicely to then follow on into those winners in later stages. That's, that's exactly right. 
Todd, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, if you just basic theory of diversification is you want to diversify across uncorrelated assets. Because if you have a lot of seed stage NFT providers, well, that's not very, even if it's 50 of them, it's still not very diversified, right? They're all going to move in the same direction, largely based on the externalities of that marketplace. So, um, Joe Mark here, I just want to keep it active with, with the community and a few hands have gone up and there's some questions in the chat you guys might want to check out. Uh, Rob, you want to lob a question in? Hey, thanks, Mark. Um, Great job all around. Good to see um, a number of you all. Um, just on that last point on on um, the 361 has developed a nice international community. I think Ken and Todd made mention a little bit of some of the international interest. Could you speak a little bit about uh, what you're seeing as far as um, either LP um, coming from LPs coming from overseas as well as strategies that are more international um, driven? That might be a growth question or a can or so. Yeah. Mel, anything? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we have not invested in any, uh, well, I say we have limited exposure to non US venture. I, I will say I have seen in the last, um, yeah, before COVID, in the COVID period. So, pardon me, the, the dates all run together, but there are a number of uh, early stage venture firms based in the Middle East. Uh, both Israel uh, and Dubai and elsewhere that are really trying to focus in on uh, the under undercapitalized, underserved areas when looking at small, almost micro investments uh, in Mumbai to Nairobi to uh, a, again parts of the, uh, the the Middle East, and they're seeing you know great people with great ideas and a, a real. Uh, lack of burden on having, you know, seen what others have done before. So they're real problem solvers. And there are a number of these firms that have just absolutely performed very well. And I'll, I'll refer back to Antler. Uh, I've known that team for a while and they've done a really good job uh, being able to, to find these opportunities worldwide. So I think what we'll see, you know, it, it, just like everything, you know, what's a, you know, how many billion dollar scooter companies does the U.S. need? <laughs> yeah, you know, we've, got, we've got way too many of those. Probably zero. About, yeah, probably we're zero. talking about people around the world that, that are that are really problem solving. And so I think we'll see a shift. I think we'll see more capital going to those startups, um, which is going to be which is good for everybody. It's good for humanity. And, uh, uh, you know, there's there's money to be made in good, smart people. Uh, you know, how do you how do you monitor the risk? How do you diversify and how do you access it? Yeah. So yeah, it has a couple of comments. One is, if I go around the world, you know, China was used to be a very good hot spot. Uh, now it's very, you know, it, it may be a thawing, but it's certainly been questionable for the last couple of years. Um, so I think the rest of Asia is selectively relatively small funds that I see that I get involved in. Um, I think India is getting getting. It's been going to go get there for a long time. I think it's getting better. Again, relatively small funds, but to me, makes sense. Uh, Middle East, you were commenting. Um, I'm involved with Mubaba. Mubabara, I can never pronounce it. The name. Yeah, they are, they are getting very active in venture and others like them in the Middle East, which you just mentioned. Uh, Israel continues to be a hotbed. Uh, and then Europe, you know, I find, I find it very selective. 
I'm not sure how, how good Europe is overall. Those, those would be my geographic comments. And Latin America has always been a continent that's it's always going to be a budding continent. I hear that every year. The one area that you didn't mention, Ken, is Africa. And I'm very, I mean, I'm, I'm invested all over the globe, but there are some tremendous, tremendous opportunities across Africa in a lot of different industries, and the valuations are dirt, dirt cheap. I used to hear that, you know, I've, I'm not going to Davos this year, but I've gone to Davos many times. And, you know, I would, I would listen to them talk. I, I, at some point, it's going to, you're right, Todd, it's going to make sense. But I, I have to tell you, sometimes to me, it's deja vu. I, I, I've gone there for a number of years and I would hear the same story literally every, every year. So you're right. It will well, happen. But well, it's been a long I wouldn't time coming. I wouldn't concentrate a portfolio in Africa, but as a diversified play. There you go. I know we're, we're bumping into the Q&A. Uh, Mark, why don't you, um, is that the next slide? Is the Q&A? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, and the last slide, again, just touch on it, Mark, real quick so folks can see what's there. There's a number of, re again, reference points, too, that, that I touched on earlier. There's some wonderful pieces out there that have come at the venture industry and, and dissected some of the issues that need changing and, and need fixing. But at the end of the day, it, it comes down to, can we support innovation, real innovation, not me to follow on scooter or food delivery companies or fill in the blank, but real meaningful and important innovation in a more structurally efficient and, and efficacious way. And that's really what this research is about um, from a capital deployment and also from a, um, so you can lower the cost of capital for the entrepreneurs that are actually interested in pursuing meaningful innovation and aren't, don't have in-network contacts, uh, contacts to uh, source the capital they need and some of the other things they need to try and take the risk to, to build real innovation. <laughs> With that, uh, this is the first of three. You, as as Kalia was, was talking about, there's a lot of granular details, which we will be getting in the weeds in, in follow-on conversations. So this was really just to introduce the concept and, the, and, and frame the need for just exploring, examining, and rethinking how we're supporting and funding um, real innovation. Joe, just one other thing before we continue. I think at some point we should have the conversation around generalist versus sector specialist. I think that anybody listening to this conversation would, and they think the other would probably argue that a specialist approach might be the way to go. So I think that would be an interesting conversation to have down the line. Oh, yeah. you know, if if you're if you're invested globally. Uh, and you're actively sharing information. You can pick pick a pick a pick a asset class, pick a an industry fintech. Uh, you know there are, there are a lot of things that a fintech entrepreneur in Africa could learn from a fintech entrepreneur in some other part of the country or the world, and vice versa. So if you've got the tools and the mindset to be able to share that information, you can be a generalist but have specific knowledge skills across a lot of different industries if you're invested in those industries on a global basis. Without a doubt. And again, the entrepreneurs need that sort of specialist insight without a doubt. Um, the one risk that we will touch on in a, in a um, uh, subsequent um, discussion is, um, you know, we talked about systematic risk, which is, is timing risk, and that's managed through staged capital deployment. We talked about non-systematic risk or transaction risk, and that's through diversification. The third risk is a growing body of, of conversation called decision process risk. And that comes down to Danny Kahneman's work, the behavioral economics or behavioral finance. Moneyball is the sort of poster child for the issues around how to manage 
the decision process risk through more objective sourcing of data and decision models versus um, getting locked in on something where you feel like you can be an expert. So that debate about generalist versus specialist is going to be fun when we start injecting that um, that behavioral economics and behavioral finance work around optimize decision models and manage that decision process risk because that's that's what a lot of the headlines we receive today ultimately are fueled by that that the decision model itself was suboptimal because people got too locked in on something, whether it was, you go back to Uber's uh, funding rounds, WeWork, uh, FTX, you know, some of these big headlines really do bring to relief that issue around um, the need for more objectivity, more data, less um, of that personal decision model. Um, and, and that it's a slippery slope of defining yourself an expert and then getting too anchored in that belief system that could lead to some bad outcomes. So it's, it's always a balancing act, obviously. Any other, I know there was a lot of questions. I couldn't think and yeah. talk and read the questions in the chat box all at the same time. Let, so. let me, I, let me just yeah. make it, let me just uh, make a couple comments about the implications of falling valuations, which we've, we've, we've experienced this last year uh, and this year. I think, you know, just kind of forward looking, I think mega rounds are going to dry up. Uh, portfolio companies are shifting away from growth at all costs and focusing a lot more on uh, extending runway. Um, there's an increased focus on path to profitability. I think the secondary market is going to be very attractive. And if you look historically, investments, and as this actually works quite well uh, over time, starting a company and investing in companies in those vintage years that are right after a recessionary period have turned out to be quite attractive. So mm -hmm. I, I would argue that putting money into the ground early stage uh, over the next couple of years is, is going to end up to be quite attractive. Todd, I think you just summarized buy low, sell high, right? <laughs> and yet we saw a lot of capital allocated when prices were really high. It's just these lessons learned that need to be learned by a new crop of, of, of investors is the ultimate goal is buy low and sell high, whether it's your own money, obviously, or, or if, if you're in a fiduciary position. Um, Mark, were you monitoring the questions or did, were there questions that you wanted to well, was, we talked about this yesterday. You know, how, do you, how do you define VC? It's an interesting question. Well, it's that that's that's a really worthy exercise if we're thinking in terms of real structural definitions, because VC has looked a lot like private equity, um, a transactional approach, right? Focus on the individual company and then what value you might be able to add. Um, Private equity, and in, in as, as a broad label, is is about using a lot of financial leverage, and and um, and then thinking they can do some things to improve the underlying operating company, but they have a lot more financial data to work from to apply their their magic to improve those operations. But at its core, it's private equity, venture capital have a lot of overlap in the mindset of, of it being historically a more of a transactional approach, a deal by deal approach. That's my view. It, well, I mean, uh, there, there's, there's an army of entrepreneurs around the world who have a desire to innovate and grow and change the world. And venture capitalists are the ones that are risking their assets to back them. Now, that's the quick decision, quick that's definition. Any others? Yeah, they're, they're, they're company yeah, builders. Hey, Joe. Yeah. Who is it? Hi, Joe. It's Safa. Safa. Hi, Safa. Hey, uh, this is a very interesting question, and especially for me, I'm one of those managers, Ken, who goes around and says that uh, we are outperforming the top 1%. In this case, of course, you will like our number because our DPI 
is 20% compared to 1% for our vintage. But my, my question really has to do with uh, the, uh, the way that a manager like me can do diversification and still be able to have those home runs that you talked about. Uh, venture business is different from public equities uh, and other liquid assets because access is not universal. And what I've learned over the past 15 years, 20 years I've been in Silicon Valley is how to build that access so we can get the right diversification. Instead of 30 companies, I can have 100 companies on a portfolio. But if those 100 companies are the so-so companies, and I get probably about 20 inbound emails and LinkedIn uh, requests for, to review the pitch, that's not going to do me any good, nor will it do any good for my LPs. So I need the access to the best people who just left Google, Amazon, or are being funded by others like me. So I'm just wondering, how do you how do you model that in? Maybe that's part of your third risk that you talked about, the the selection process. But to me, that is the key distinction of the venture model and what I believe is what will make uh, venture funds succeed or not. Yeah, I think you you, you bring a real important uh, a real important point about the structural difficulties of building a properly architected portfolio if you wanted to follow all this research that's out there, right? Because uh, this is theoretical research. This has not been deployed to my knowledge where there's been proper diversification and proper stage capital deployment across multiple rounds to manage those risks properly based on data um, versus um, personal perception, sort of that decision process risk management. So there's there's not been a fund managed to this. Why not? What are the structural limitations? Um, the key thing, and it really does go back, I think, to the public markets, you know, if you were a public and trading company in the teens or 20s, 100 years ago, you didn't have to report in a standardized way. There was no SEC to enforce gap accounting requirements and these sorts of things until the crash of 29. And the 33 Act established stand, the first standardized reporting for publicly traded companies, and the SEC was formed to enforce it. And, and if you look at the 33 Act language, it literally says in an act of risk management, they established these. So to your point, it's damn difficult to do build, architect and, and source and architect and manage a proper venture strategy use, if you aspire to all these this research without good reporting coming from the individual companies themselves. And that requires a lot of the in-person interactions that take place and start opening the, uh, the doors for, um, um, again, the, the variabilities that come from that, that version, that in-person um, interaction. Um, a question from Zarin. Yes, another question. Yes, a quick question. I was reading in uh, Matt Levin's column, actually, that uh, most of the mutual funds, when there is a big volatility, of course, it's uh, traded uh, day to day. You can see how the prices go down. But the private investments, private equity, venture capital don't have to do that. But they have been pressured to do it and they do, you know, uh, write downs as well, like the big five, it was mentioned. And um, so the question is, well, what do you think about this having managed uh, job also like uh, liquid assets as well? And also, uh, how would that affect the risk management? Because, uh, you know, banks also lend against client portfolios that have allocation uh, to alternatives. And, you know, banks also need to adjust their uh, Lombard lending, maybe ratios. 
That's a, a really profound question. There's just lots of layers to that, Duran. And, and uh, yeah, having managed money in the public markets and, and clients' assets in the private markets, it ultimately, again, has been, uh, you do it at the portfolio level. And again, think of a, an individual family, right? You don't have a lot locked up in those illiquid assets. So it's not your collateral for loans. It's not, it, it is your satellite strategy that's to add beta and add some 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 icing on the return cake, if you will. That has been the, so you manage that, the illiquid nature of it through how much you actually deployed in the asset class itself. If you're a manager of a fund, you can manage a lot of the, that volatility of pricing and performant, reflected performance through just, again, the staged capital deployment. Don't spend all your money too soon. So you can manage systematic risk, timing risk, because you can't predict the future but you can manage risk as you move into the future in deploying capital in an illiquid asset class. And that's for staged capital deployment. Joe, yesterday, Ken was commenting on how he saw the fall and how the write downs are going to be, we're going to see the marks coming through this year. Is that fair, Ken? Slowly? Yeah, you know, it, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When I ask, you know, I would say when I looked at the secondary market, when I see the marks, it's funny, the secondary market, the marks are all the, all the way down to 50 to 70% of what I show for net asset values. Um, so it tells me, uh, at least the secondary guys don't, don't perceive the current marks as realistic, which means it is, it is probably somewhere in between because obviously secondary guys want to make a lot of money. Yeah. So, so, there, so there, there is a, you know, arbitrage going on, but I, I, my sense is if you took a basket, the, the, the current marks in both private equity and venture may be too high by about 20% if I would across almost everything. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll chime in on that. I, I think that's a, I think it's a fair take. Uh, that's one of the things, you know, being on the, the boards and, and, and underwriting is asset valuation. Uh, you know, the managers are, you know, to me, you'd want to get all the bad news out as soon as you could. But there's some investors that that person, that's the investor, gets paid on IRR, so that maybe they don't want all the bad news out there. So there's there's some conflicts. Uh, but in general, I think there's there's still some downside into where things are right now. Okay. Any other questions? The, the, the discount secondary pricing uh, discounts to NAV. And that doesn't necessarily mean that NAV is attractive. It went from 88% uh, at the end of 2021. It's now at 65%. And I, I think to, to Ken's point, it can go further down. Richard, do you have a question? Uh, yeah. Um, hi, thanks to everybody. I've had a, a really good time listening to this conversation. My neck hurts from nodding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> um, um, uh, my business is Capital Pilot. We built a rating system for startups to kind of try and create some of this data against which you can invest. But my key question here is, and the, so the ongoing question in our business is, what's the incentive for the industry to change? Because isn't everybody fat, dumb and happy? Isn't everybody perfectly yeah. happy? as it exists today. So we see all these risks that you've identified, Joe, but what's the incentive to change? Well, that's a, that's a profound question. And it's sort of, again, I'm a student of history and certainly financial history. And if you look at the narrative around when index funds started surfacing, um, people don't realize they started surfacing roughly in 1970. 
And of course, there was the same hue and cry from the active management industry about, no, this, you've got to know the companies, you've got to really get into their earnings per share calculations. And that same narrative was going on back then. Um, and so you can see this play out and it looks exactly the same in the venture asset class. I don't think it'll take 20, 30, 40 years for this change to take place. I really don't because there is with technology, it's allowed for movement in bringing some innovative venture models. It's already happening, but at the end of the day, it's going to have to come from the money. You know, that's why Mel's opinion is so important because when you're a serious allocator, an institutional allocator, um, ultimately the money has to have an expectation from where they're deploying that capital. And conversely, investors, the, the VCs that do launch funds have to have set higher expectations from the startups themselves. You want this money, you need to report better. So that money's got to dictate the change to ultimately make sure that if we need venture construction where there's more rigorous and thorough risk management, that's got to come from the LP side. If we need better reporting from startups, that's got to come from the, the investor side, whether it's a venture fund or family office or angel groups or whoever else. So the money has to dictate the expectations. And that just depends on where they, they lie in that food chain. Yeah, and well, I'll add that just a little bit. Just, you know, again, what's what's going to dictate change? Well, well it's certainly from this perspective, but I'm already seeing uh, some funds embrace this to a certain degree. So it's the advent of, you know, the, the whole scout investing embedded within a fund. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, rarely saw that. Now there's a handful of, you have second generation type funds that realize, hey, I, I can, my returns really go up if I have these, you know, 40 different scout investments. And then I get to, to follow on within that same fund, the four, five, six that really take off. Uh, so, you know, we, just like everybody, you want to invest in, in venture managers that are interested in the carry, not interested in the management fee. And as more people realize what could be, and, and, and are brave enough to do little things a little bit different, I think the return profile will accelerate uh, this move toward greater diversification and then a much more serious follow-on to what those investments are. And again, not, not done in opportunity funds, but done within the construct of the fund itself. I, I'll, I'll make a comment here. There were more than 2,000 first-time funds started over the last decade. Uh, 300 of them in in 2021, and that's dropped off a cliff in 2022. But the cost of starting a fund is not that expensive. Mm -hmm. And most of these funds are going to be a small number of people running them, in many cases, a, a one-person fund. You can't, it's humanly impossible to have a very, very, very broadly diversified portfolio with a small team. So if diversification is, is, a, is a concept here that, that we've talked about earlier is going to narrow the spread between upper and lower quartiles, so actually you know, improving the beta, if you will, of the venture capital asset class, you need a very, very large platform and it needs to be global. And there are not a lot of firms that are out there that are, be, that are able to do that. Most of them are small. I, I think the industry itself, again, is going through its own evolution, Todd. You're absolutely right. I think that there are folks, I think, what was his name? Um, Richard Blakesley was commenting. There are some data tools that are getting put in place so that you don't have to throw bodies at the data gathering process and the reporting process. 
moving in this direction of, of fewer bodies, more technology towards building these more diversified portfolios. So there's technology is, is a wonderful tool to, um, to replace the need for just, just basically throwing bodies at it and, and that sort of the analog model of gathering just the data and the sourcing, the information, the monitoring of potential investments. There are tools that are, again, getting built, and that's just the evolution that thankfully is taking place. Um, yeah, this is uh, for a half hour. This was a uh, this was a pretty good conversation. Yeah, I also just wanted to chime in. I think families wanting to get into ventures, especially earlier stage, is also driving um, not necessarily dis disruption within the industry. But I would say, at a brief stint at a law firm where a lot of our clients were top VCs in Silicon Valley, uh, a lot of the funds would have these institutional investors and they would consistently roll them over to the next fund. So even family capital couldn't get into any of these funds, except, you know, Sequoia, they'll charge you 330 and put you in a late stage growth, right? Where there's not much meat on the bone, but given the gravitational, you know, pull of, um, I guess, early stage emerging manager um, funds, especially, you know, I, I think, it's helping by that. Um, but I would also like to comment on the uh, conversation around diversification and concentration. Um, one of them was solving for that by becoming the institutional LP in some of these huge funds and then allowing families to ride, you know, ICAR. So I think that's an interesting like disruption um, to the industry. And they don't charge an additional layer of fees per se. They, they sort of shave it off um, Instead of a 330, the FOIA would charge for a direct fund, it would be 3.52. And then another fund that came across, it was actually a fund of funds. What they have that's really, really compelling is something that is a bit of a as much as it allows for diversification in, in being the fund of funds that get into a lot of emerging managers. Uh, also have a proprietor that serves as an early you know, detection radar, um, radar detection for coming outliers uh, of portfolio companies before the emergencies even. So what's interesting is on the one hand, you know, at a zero, 10 current level, they're able to, then, you know, using their software to say, these are the ones that are doing really well. Then for a co-investor, you're going to get that real pop, I think. So that's basically what you did do at Greenspring, right? Yeah. And you around the, the question is how, what's the what's the minimum to get into Greenspring or or <coughs> for that matter, Bell's Fund, Grosvenor. Wait. Yeah, I mean, it's yes. You know, there are certain commingled vehicles that that are fund of funds, Greenspring. Uh, there's a Michigan-focused one, uh, Renaissance Ventures, which has performed very well. Uh, there's a, you know, okay. I, yeah, have I think things like that. It's, it's a, is it a five million dollar minimum commitment? Is it ten? I that I, I great Green Spring Green Spring took investors as low as fifty thousand dollars. Okay. Okay. Cool. I, I have a quick question for the VCs and 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 all of you. Anytime you encounter the question of, well, it's really, really difficult to change consumer behavior. What are your thoughts around that? Because on the one hand, you know, disruptive tech itself is, 
you know, kind of more or less defined by the fact that you do change behaviors and, and years from now you go, well, how did we ever live without that technology? But this is an initiative that comes up and I'm just wondering how you um, go through that when deciding whether to get into a tech play. I can uh, chime in that if you like uh, as a VC because we that's a question that uh, we encounter almost every day when we see a brand new technology. To us, that consumer behavior change is the most critical uh, factor and is the reason why we pass on 90% of the deals that have great technology. But it, our criteria is if there is a major pain point that has depth, breadth, and frequency, then eventually consumer behavior will change. Mm -hmm. But it's, if it's a nice-to-have feature, if, even if it's a great technology, then the risk of consumer behavior change is really, really strong. And I think it, it happens even in the, in the B2B sector, the changing of the behavior of the purchasing managers, whether it's a hospital or a company or a, or a factory is really, really difficult. So I think, uh, Andrea, you hit on a very important point for us that we consider every day. Thank you. Any I other mean, you know, consumer behavior, I mean, it's a very silly but easy example is, you know, used to the, the point was don't talk to strangers and don't get into other people's cars, right? And now you, with Uber, you, you get into a car with a stranger, right? And it's it's normal course of business. So consumer behavior changes if you know, there are uh, if there are aspects that are beneficial to one's life. Yeah, I always think in terms of systems and sort of processes and learning from others. And so I, I think in terms of the disruption cycle and then the book, The Tipping Point, that talks about how does things tip over to change, that, that there was begrudging, very little movement, and then all of a sudden an accelerated movement. And so the, that's for me, it's a case-by-case -case basis um, as to whether it's, a again, what the product is, whether it's a financial services product or just a basic food product or CPG product or consumer product. I don't know, other than I always like to study systems and, and then see where there's patterns to be uh, learned from. It just, it just varies. That's my read. Other comments, questions? Hey, Todd, uh, Todd, it's Rob Colorino. Just one quick clarification there is, you know, on the ride hailing versus taxi, I mean, there's greater two things. One, there's commercial upside. And then two, the whole system and filtering and the algorithms that basically go on ratings of drivers and and um, and passengers that helps both screen and make comfort. So it's you know it's not necessarily an apples to apples comparison. Just just thought to throw that out there. Yeah, I mean you, you can pick a lot. I just picked something that I thought was very obvious. I mean you could yeah. say the same thing about. Uh, consumer behavior, nobody was wearing Fitbits, right? And now it's a huge thing. It, it, things that are beneficial to you that you deem useful, uh, behavior can change pretty rapidly. Other comments? What, what, one question I have is that we're gonna have after this with Joe is what do we wanna do next? What does what part two look like in part three and four? I'm not limiting it to three, Joe. Um, and what people wanna see you could let us know. Maybe we'll do a quick three-question survey, get the input. Yeah, I think we're getting down to some real, and call you ask some really relevant questions, is that this is a broad topic, right? And there's just a remarkable amount of people that aren't aware of some of the changes taking place. Um, and so that's really was the goal of this one. And then just 
sort of some of the topical things that somewhat are aligned with some of the headlines as to why they need to change and, and, and the like. Getting down in the weeds on how to change it. If you, again, if you study it, I always go back again, and my simplistic mind is, is modeled after what happened in the public markets. And it goes back to this issue of standardized reporting. Standardized reporting is uh, transparency broadly defined is, is one of the structural optimizations of any system design. And it's what's lacking in the venture asset class so that better capital deployment can take place and these, this, this research can be leveraged and, and applied. Um, I also think in terms of scalability, you know, this is about deploying capital at scale. In the public markets, there's, oh, there could be a hot hand on some niche asset class. They had a trading strategy and they'd have a hot hand for a while. And there's no doubt about that. There's always that opportunity set. But that doesn't mean that scalable or repeatable alpha that serious capital can be deployed to with confidence. It was just an episodic form of outperformance and, and oftentimes would drift off. Either because a person got so successful, they made so much money themselves, they're no longer hungry. And we can think of the parallels there with very large venture funds versus the emerging managers that are scrappy and, and, and have a pretty good track record in aggregate. Um, but it also comes down to the, the, again, the need for just thinking in terms of a de deploying capital at scale to deliver repeatable alpha. I always think in terms of like a manufacturing process. So we'll be talking in subsequent um, um, sessions about what does it take? What is the proper standardized reporting? What does that even mean and why is that important? And the implications of that at the fund structure level and obviously the architecture and the ongoing management. How can you source, which is a really important question. How can you source startups and given the historical norm of, of being in network and having something referred into you, or as the VC, you have to go attend a whole lot of demo days and a whole lot of, of networking events to try and get in front of and, and maybe find some entrepreneurs that you might come across yourself. Well, just at a system design level, that's a process that is terribly labor intensive highly variable in the outcomes and not something to design a system around if you're trying to improve the system's outcomes. And so it comes down to the, the, the sourcing we'll discuss as well uh, in a view, particularly at the seed to be. This is a really important comment is that this is largely, this research is largely about optimizing that seed to be round. After that, it very much, you have more linearity to the financials, you've got more data. It looks even more like a private equity transaction when it becomes later and later stage because you've got more meat on the bone on their financial reports and they're hopefully <laughs> audited and gap compliant, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's really, I think, the coming attractions. And then there are some uh, models we'll actually show where this is starting to come together, where they're actually pulling together a lot of these individualized pieces. There's a variety of companies that are doing bits and pieces, but focusing on only one or two. But there are some, some models coming together that are incorporating all these tools to actually deploy capital at scale to deliver repeatable alpha, regardless of the venture thesis. Joe, can you can you address the angle from Todd said, you know, you need a big team diversifying, and I understand what you're saying, but can you address the part where each investment um, is a one-off standalone financial transaction? Uh, you know, once you've gotten past the, all the data you're talking about, how do you deal with that with many, many, many investments? Well, it also comes down to, again, the portfolio architecture, and this is getting in the, a bit of the weeds on what the next ones will be, but it really does come down to taking a different approach, particularly if you're building that seed stage portfolio. 
right? It always comes back to if we think in terms of a seed to be strategy where you're going to employ across all three rounds. How do you assemble a seed stage portfolio that fits your venture thesis, blockchain or female entrepreneurs or geographic focus? You can define your venture thesis. And that is a choice between you and your LPs as to where you want to place bets in, to get in front of the innovation based on that thesis. But beyond that, the process of then sourcing the companies to populate a seed portfolio, it comes back. The public markets, it's called smart beta. You define your factors that will exclude a company from making it into um, that seed stage portfolio. It's multi-factor filtering is what it's called in the public markets, where you're defining what you don't want. Because the more you spend time defining what you do want and get locked in on doing a transactional approach, then that scalability starts breaking down. And so it really comes back to a change in perspective to manage risk almost exclusively in filtering out the companies you don't want, making sure those that do, that do make their way in, yes, they fit your venture thesis, but they also don't have the character traits that are highly probabilistic of them failing. Because that's easily identified than trying to predict pick a winner early on because picking a winner means you're predicting the future. But defining what you don't want is about analyzing the past and identifying those high risk character traits and behavior traits at the entrepreneurial level that are highly correlated with bad outcomes. And there's, a, there's some really interesting work on that. So one quick question I guess from, from Andrew. Yeah, uh, it, no, that part I understand makes perfect sense. I mean, data and transparency, I'm saying when you get down to actually executing 40 transactions, let's just pick a number, now you have 40 individual legal agreements with 40 companies that define your investment. And they're not unlike public companies, there's no consistency to how they're done. How do you deal with that? Well, again, this is always about optimization, right? And it always comes back to some first principles of optimization is standardization. So standardized term sheets. Why is Y Combinator so successful is because they literally have their standardized safe, right? And investors have just adopted it, right? And it doesn't require a valuation negotiation or anything else. So there's a lot of lessons learned where standardized term sheets has become a norm for that, one of the, this exact reason. So at least now we're not negotiating every transaction, every valuation and haggling over every little component of an individualized term sheet. And that term sheet needs to be de-risked. Should it, Y Combinators finally started incorporating QSBS uh, in their legends on their their, um, uh, their their template because 1244 itself de-risks seed stage investing just through the tax cut without any other due diligence required. And they're now incorporating that since I think about 2018. So these are, it's standardization of de-risking. And again, standardized term sheet is just one easy step in that whole process. There's some other things that some of these models that are coming together is also the notion of capital calls is brain damage. If you've got a standardized term sheet and you're giving the same amount to every one of them, think of an index fund for your seed stage portfolio. Now, all of a sudden, you can do electronic release of the funds, have your investors to put capital in the bank account, and just have the money electronically released. So you're not just doing capital calls every time a deal gets approved and, and a term sheet's up. This is just using technology to replace the bodies because that old model has just never been broken down and built back up saying, okay, let's use modern technology to streamline the workflow of the back office of a venture fund. It's happening, 
But this is just taking a whiteboard and thinking, how can we fix where there's so many choke points in the very operations of the back office of a venture fund that ultimately leads to the need for concentration and overanalyzing a, a small number of transactions to get in the portfolio? Because their own back office is just not automated. And that's true. You know, lawyers, the service industries broadly defined were oftentimes the last ones to adopt computers back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, my question was distance or meeting the lawyers, not the other part. Yeah. And against all of that, what changes and what doesn't change with AI? And, you know, some of the things that you you mentioned already, Joe, um, you know, AI and certain things can be um, easily, you know, I guess, you know, ameliorated with that or standardized. But what what wouldn't AI be able to I mean, because even now looking at certain people's expression, sentiment, you know, do you think that changes, that goes away? Or do you think we still need that human interaction to, you know, and for, this is a question for all, but just I'm curious what you think, you know, what role you think AI plays in, in all of this? I, I, my, this is my take. At the end of the day, it all, it, it comes down to the entrepreneur and evaluating the qualities and the capabilities of the entrepreneur and the qualities and capabilities and behavioral dynamics of the team that they put together. And I don't, I don't think that AI is going to be able to solve for that. Yeah. This is, this is Hamlet early, early stage investing. I mean, every, every deck you look at looks identical. Here's, here's what's broken. Here's what's missing. Here's the mousetrap. Here's the hockey stick. And here's a team that's going to execute it. Um, <laughs> AI is going to give you uh, a, I mean, for, for that. I think it's, it's a subjective human call. You need to have a manager who understands risk, but understands and can can evaluate uh, uh, jockeys. Uh, okay, does the technology make sense? Does the TAM, the market, all that make sense? Great. Okay, is this the team that's going to execute? And is this the, is this the team that's going to stick together when the entire plan falls apart and you got to scramble? Sure. Uh, I don't think any uh, yeah. humans are not going to be taken out of that liberty oh. time. Sure, but like, how many times can we you know look back and say, oh, turns out we were wrong, right? Because you think you have a good read on the jockey, but you know if AI could pick up on micro expressions, right, and and be able to do something with that, I think that could actually play an interesting role in all of this, right? Because I would I would I would I would argue humans humans made the decision to invest in S in, in in FTX, so that 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 I think is a, it's a, it's a flawed diligence process. So when you look at when you look at people who get early stage venture wrong. It's because they just they 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 missed glaring things that I you know, I I hadn't seen any anything from an AI standpoint that can do what a a a proper manager with, with intuition and intelligence can. <clears throat> Not yet. And also within the alternatives industry, there's so much manual process still that on a base level, Andrea, I think that what AI is going to be able to do is to automate those that part of the process. And it's really going to be able. To, it's going to be able to enable better decision making at the higher level. It won't replace it, but it's going to make it more insightful. Great, thanks. Yeah, and the thing I would add again, I, I I tried to frame my perspective early on because I'm just a broken record about learning from the public markets. And, and Danny Kahneman, I'm just a huge fan of. Followed him for a number of years, and he was the keynote speaker at the CFA Institute's global annual meeting in Beijing or Hong Kong back in 2018. And he did a presentation on this, and his comments were simply stated. And for those of you that don't know, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002. Hey, 
Yeah, and he's the father of behavioral economics, the whole money ball notion where data versus human bias. Um, and he said his his quote and his presentation was that, look, at, algorithms be human bias all day long. That's not hard to understand. But simple algorithms be complex ones. And that's where a lot of the quant mentality goes, oops, because the natural quant mentality is to build complex algorithms to be the secret sauce of their investment decision, whether it's public or private markets. Simple algorithms meet complex ones. And if you layer in Malcolm Gladwell's um, work in the book Blink, he finds four data points as the optimal number of data points in a simple algorithmic decision framework. But that has to be in the hands of an experienced practitioner. The human capital, the human component can never be overlooked. But it's a combination of those two. Simple algorithms, the right data points, and a simple algorithmic construct in the hands of an experienced practitioner. That is the optimal model. Um, okay, so I I'll say this. I love Malcolm Gladwell's work. In his book, he actually talks about how in five minutes, we know if we like someone or not. And more often than not, we've already decided if we like someone or not. And then we look for justifications later. I think it's very easy sometimes for founders to create, you know, I mean, I, I've to create a curated uh, message, right? Knowing what you want to hear. And that, it, it, I don't know. I, I just, I think the human, you know, we often get in our own way. And, you know, there's a reason why we're emphasizing the diversity of thought, diversity of, you know, um, just backgrounds to, to try to thwart that, right? Otherwise, we get into the same things we we're comfortable with. So anyway, I just, but yeah, no, I will optimize both. Miriana, uh, go ahead. Yes. Hi. Amazing panel. Mark, this is the best one so far. So well done. <laughs> we are all, what Richard said, uh, nodding all the time. So, um, and talking about Richard, I mentioned in my comment as well, Capital Pilot Boost has very innovative model in London. So they're using AI actually to uh, remove lots of unconscious bias in the process. Uh, but again, I don't want to jump into Richard's mouth. So Richard, do you want to explain maybe that um, where both human AI actually interacted for the best outcome, where you don't really, re uh, uh, let's say, remove from the um, uh, process someone that uh, maybe um you know underdog and can really deliver massive uh, return later on based on obviously your own assumptions because of your previous experiences which is also going to andrea's comment about uh, psychology of ours our own um thanks mana and i'm not here to pitch what we do but i can talk about our experience um having made uh, 100 investments in uk-based startups in six months using a model um that is learning from exactly the way in which human VCs um, codify their investment decisions. Uh, and the really interesting outcome is that without any um, desire to create positive discrimination, the portfolio that we've created uh, is extraordinarily diverse and diversified. Every sector, every geography in the UK, um, overrepresented uh, in terms of female founders, overrepresented in terms of ethnic minority founders. And that's been achieved largely by creating a model and a system and a structure uh, which is easy to access uh, and which uh, removes all of the biases which Joe was talking about. So it's been a pretty interesting uh, process, pretty interesting experiment, and one that we're looking to scale up now.
Yeah, I think what I really do believe having followed this evolution of the venture industry for so long is that I think we are, and I think this is a prediction, which is always dangerous. Um, but I think we're much closer to the tipping point of the real structural changes in the model than certainly we've ever been. And there is certainly enough evidence that that, that acceleration is happening. Um, there's lots of experiments, lots of data vendors, lots of tools that are being built. Uh, we were even seeing a lot of activity uh, from public market investors very quietly uh, funding the infrastructure for secondary markets, a proper NASDAQ for private securities and the corporate governance expectations or requirements as if they were a public company, but they're exchanges for private security. So a lot of this infrastructure and toolkits and back office broadly defined tools, components, processes are taking shape. And I think that all of a sudden we're going to look up and see this tipping point got arrived at us all of a sudden. But in fact, a lot of that, 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 that uh, background work has been done now. I've been, like I said, tracking closely for the last nine years and I'd say in the last three years, it's accelerated. Joe, we got one more question here from Harvey. Hi, um, I just wanted to get a consensus from the group, the government, there's news articles that have been coming out about the SEC looking into the FDX scan, uh, disaster and so-called sophisticated VCs putting in all this money and their due diligence process and potentially opening up uh, Pandora's box for LP uh, lawsuits. Does anybody have a comment about that? I, I saw that this morning and I was going to reference it and add it to the deck as a, for folks to grab. And yeah, it was in Dan Premax, um, Premark's uh, Axios piece this morning. And I think some of the, the, the summation that, that he put in his, the article, I think was pretty accurate. We don't necessarily need that, but I think it's an important shot across the bow. That's my personal, this is just personal, um, for LPs to feel more emboldened to hold accountable. Um, if nothing else, the GPs have to, if they really screwed up, have to feel like there's some degree of personal accountability for just going along with the crowd because they are fiduciaries afterwards. That is somebody else's money. And if they completely abandon it and leverage their social capital, leverage their um, all the wrong reasons, which gets repeated time and again, and just say, well, that's what happens. You've hired us to take great risk as their rationalization is uh, there has to be some degree of a, a more personal accountability is my, my editorial comment. Mel, you're, you're. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it, it's hard to, you know, the SEC taking charge and, and litigating stupid, but yeah. it's, uh, you know, it goes down to, you know, the investors, you, you've got to hold people accountable for good decisions and bad decisions. And so how did this, um, you know, I, I would love to say I'm not in any funds that were not in FTX. So, uh, <laughs> so we're, we're having some, uh, some hard conversations. Yeah, the article did mention this at the economy that uh, you know, major institutional investors will uh, will never go after the uh, the GPs because they would be then knocked out of potential deals in the future, and that uh, it would be more like the family office and the ultra high net worth or high net worth client that potentially could go uh, file suits and things of that nature. Uh, historically, funds have done Yeah, I mean, that goes back to this notion of it being an access class. And thus, as an access class, they can use that as leverage to not hold themselves accountable. And that's a, a, a real fundamental reason why it needs to be more like an asset class than an access class. That's just a, a glaring example as to why. 
Other questions? Well, I just think that that's going to change just a little bit, especially against the backdrop of Sequoia getting into FTX after a 20 minute conversation with Sam when he was still playing a video game, League of Legends. This one will probably be down in history, <laughs> you know, so this should be uh, an interesting one. But yeah, yeah but I, I hope it goes so down in history. That's, that's... <laughs> it, it, it was extreme, but I saw the same behavior 20 years ago, 20 some years ago and then the late 90s. Again, from the belly of the beast, I saw the same behavior, different players, different companies. You know, there's, a, uh, there's an American comedian. I'm sure many of you know him. His name is Stephen Wright. And he comes up with these great two-liners. And he just reminded me of one. He said, I think I've got amnesia and deja vu at the same time. I think I've forgotten this before. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Lovely comedian. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's, it is deja vu all over again. And having been on the inside of it and seen it again, it's, it's just different players and different firms, but the behavior is the same. And and the thing that I've watched over the last um, couple of decades is, you know, Israel from a standing start is, is just rocking it, funding real interesting tech, doing great as it, as they're the number one, most innovative country in the world. Right on a per capita and, and all the, uh, the the standardization and, and, and normalization metrics. Um, clearly, we've seen what's happened in China. They become a technological threat, as obviously, and, and other threats as Steve talked about. Um, we we don't have another decade or two to learn the lessons with another crop of startups and another crop of investors again and repeat the same behavior. I, don't th- I think we've lost that luxury of time. I think the urgency to be better at this. Get better information from startups. That should be an expectation. Demo day, because you're good at pitching and you're, everybody's got matching uh, T-shirts, a demo day shouldn't be the reason you get funding. Standardized reporting, some objective metrics, better investment processes, right? better in risk management, better in the growing uh, appetite for impact and ESG. I mean, those qualitative metrics and, and motivation. Sure, I apologize, but... Uh... Standardized reporting does not help us about uh, when the multiples shrink and does not help us when the founders uh, do something wrong. Standardized reporting is for follow-ups when you're already in the portfolio. So I don't think it is for every stage uh, and it is not for uh, every stage of selection and every stage of management. Um, So I don't think that that's the key to the whole situation. Maybe it is the key to the systematic portfolio creation as opposed to uh, management of the situations, which by definition are binary, right? Either succeed or not. And that's what we're trying to solve for, not for just reporting. Sorry for this disagreement. Well, as, thank you for that. And as I was starting to say, the, the second phase is better processes. And, and what you speak to is, yes, managing timing risk through better capital deployment decisions, more disciplined risk management than capital deployment decisions. Hopefully with an aspiration of better outcomes, right? Better information will lead to allow and support better investment processes and capital deployment and risk management practices with with a better outcome being, as Todd was pointing out, less dispersion around uh, top and bottom quartiles. This becoming more like an asset class than an access class. So serious money that's on the sidelines and probably is thirsty to to deploy capital, 
outside the public markets. I mean, what are the public markets going to deliver in, in real nominal alpha over the next 10 to 20 years? A lot of work on that. Just mid single digits is probably a, a Joe, 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 I, Joe, I agree with you, but I think the main thing is here is not reporting again. The main thing is um, corporate governance because you can report whatever you want at the end of the day. Uh, and uh, family offices don't have representation on most of these boards. And uh, even funds cannot influence um, founders because the founders normally have much more, um, uh, many more votes. So as a result, the transparency is the weakest part of the reports. You cannot change their mind, the founder's mind, even when they're going under with the phenomenal reporting. Well, I, 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 and I'll take exception to that. Anybody that invests in, in a startup with, with lacking any sort of control features, uh, whether it's reporting, whether it's transparency, whether it's whatever, then you're, th this is the, the very risk or part of the very risk structure that we're all talking about investing away from. That's how you change a system is, is changing expectations and behavior, both of entrepreneurs, but also those providing the capital to the entrepreneur.